Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. This is your podcast of music discovery, and in some instances, rediscovery. Oh, yeah. Proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the number one music podcast network in the world, and we are very proud of that. Uh, Amazing things are happening at Pantheon, including uh, the fact that Pantheon will shortly become the home of the official approved Metallica podcast. Yeah. Uh, That is incredible news. All that means is a lot more people poking around the network and listening to all the great podcasts, including Audio Judo. Yeah, so if you're uh, here because of the Metallica podcast, welcome. I hope you find something you enjoy. We do have uh, at least one episode where we talk about Metallica and a couple others where I think we touched on them. And if uh, you're only here for Metallica, thanks for listening to this episode. Right. (laughs) Uh, With that said, uh, we are in the middle of the uh, pre-production for our other two shows. Audio Judo does jazz and Throughline, uh, which are launching the second seasons of their program this fall. Throughline has a Metallica album on their list for season two, so uh, that'll be great for all of us. And, you know, uh, we can't wait to hear what he's got going on in the second season. Like I said before, it's incredibly ambitious, so uh, I'm sure he could pull it off. Kyle, what have you got for us today? Today we're talking about uh, Judas Priest's British Steel. British Steel. Solid album by the Leatherbound Boys. Right. Two very big hits on this record. Yeah. Album that kind of paved the way for them to make it in the States. Wasn't the huge explosion in the States, but it did kind of set the table for them. It got them started. Yeah. Priest was one of the main exporters of the... Nawabum sound, the new wave of British heavy metal that would creep its way over from the UK to the States. They were joined by Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, Diamond Head, host of other bands that brought the heavy metal sound with distinctive melodic parts to them, yeah. uh, making a sound unique to that era. Uh, so I, I have to uh, I have to ask this question, okay? As I always seem to now. Personal or professional choice? Uh, a little bit of both, actually. I was familiar with this album. Uh, I've I've listened to it before. Uh, I listened to it many years ago uh, when I was going through like a, a very heavy metal period in, in my musical tastes. I've always enjoyed this album. It's pretty good. Um, one that didn't, for whatever reason, come up when I was originally, you know, picking albums for the for the podcast, and then kind of now that I'm starting to pick some more random ones, I was like, oh, that would actually be a good one to return to. So. We did. See, I was always more of an Iron Maiden fan for one reason or another. I think I enjoy uh, Bruce Dickinson's voice to Rob Halford's, and I always thought that uh, Nico McBrain was a a much better drummer than whoever was occupying the drummer's (laughs) seat at that point uh, in Judas Priest. But I guess if I if I was going to choose a Priest album of my own, I probably would have gone two albums down from this one, Mm -hmm. 1982's Screaming for Vengeance. Oh, that's a good album. Couple of reasons. Uh, My brother owned that tape, so I used to borrow it (laughs) quite a bit. And two, the song you've got another thing coming got oh. almost constant airplay on MTV in the channel's infancy yeah uh, so I saw it all the time and you know what maybe I will do a judo chop on that Ooh, that would be cool but you know what else Kyle hmm. the only way our listeners can be part of that oh is by signing up for our patreon where in- the judo chops hide indeed uh yeah so if you want to get into the patreon there are three tiers the highest tier is called the, the uh, backstage pass tier twenty dollars per month and for that you'll get a shout out by name or nickname at the end of every episode early access to uh, to episodes via Patreon, uh, access to those mini episodes that Matthew was just talking about, the judo chops, uh, access to some bonus bits that we had to cut out of regular episodes for time or clarity or because some weird noises were happening. Uh, plus, after three months at that tier, you'll get a special gift from Matthew and I. And the big part, uh, after one year at that tier, you get to co-host an episode of Audio Judo with Matthew and I on the album of your choice. Uh, that does only activate once, and it does only activate after a year. So uh, choose wisely. If you just want access to the Judo Chops uh, and none of the, the higher bonus stuff, you can join the Front Row Seats tier. It's $5 a month. For that, you get a shout-out by name or nickname at the end of every episode, uh, early access to the episodes via Patreon, uh, access to the Judo Chop mini-episodes, and access to the Chopped Out 
bonus bits. And if you want to support the podcast and you're not really concerned about getting anything in return, you can join our Shout It Out Loud tier. Uh, that is $1 or peso or uh, ruble or whatever in your local currency. Uh, and for that, you'll get a shout out by name or nickname at the end of every single episode. So uh, it's a pretty good deal. We have a couple or we have a couple. We have one person at that tier right now. Uh, would love to have a couple people at that tier, though. Mm-hmm. So, That's true. Yeah. If you can support us, that would be great. So, yeah, British Steel. Yeah. So uh, let's start, though, by talking a little bit about uh, Judas Priest, shall okay. we? So uh, they were originally formed in Birmingham, England in 1969 by lead vocalist Al Atkins and bassist Brian Bruno Steppenhill uh, with John Perry on guitars and John Feza Partridge on drums. Uh, sadly, John Perry committed suicide uh, and the band had to search for a replacement. The band auditioned several replacements, including Kenny K.K. Downing, uh, but they went with Ernest Chatway, uh, who had played with the band Earth. Uh, they would later become Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the reason why the, the K.K. Downing connection is important is because he is eventually in the band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, Audition. I, oh, I was going to get to okay. that. Yeah. After uh, they picked, um, excuse me, after they picked Ernest Chatway, there's so many drummers in this band, I get them confused constantly. Bruno had suggested the name Judas Priest from the Bob Dylan song titled The Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Did you listen to that song, Kyle? I did not, actually. I did. It just reaffirms my belief that Dylan is overrated and I just don't get it. Fair enough. I'm probably going to get hate mail for, for saying that, but I just don't understand the love for Dylan. I really, I need someone, Chris Delisle, I love you to death, brother. <laughs> You've tried to explain this to me multiple times and I just don't get it. If if all he did was write poetry, yeah. I can absolutely see the value, but the instant his mouth is in front of a microphone, I am completely checked <sighs> out. I am like totally checked out. I, I have no interest in it whatsoever and and I it, it's harsh, but I don't get it. Man, I don't feel as bad now saying I just don't care for Bob Dylan. I, after that, <laughs> after that slam, I was going to, I was really worried. I'm like, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail if I say, you know, I don't really listen to Bob Dylan. I don't care for him, but I see why some people do. I just need someone to explain it to me. <laughs> like I need someone to to point out where where the value is. The best thing I have been able to come up with is that Bob Dylan was right person, right place, right time. Because of when he became incredibly popular, he was making music on a scene that was absolutely craving music. The, the hippies and the um, beatniks and, and all the people in the 60s. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on a word there. But that group of people were, were craving music that spoke to them, that was part of their generation. And along comes Bob Dylan, who was good enough that he, you know, rocketed through that. And then he became this, you know, he wasn't just Bob Dylan. He was Bob Dylan, you know, way up in the sky. Right. And because of that, he's now just kind of carried that on forever. Yes. I don't think he's had a song worth listening to since the 60s. Wow. And there were a couple of great ones in the 60s. But since then, I'm like, I don't get it. So hmm. anyway, I don't get it. All right. Well. So, uh, surprise, surprise, John Partridge was replaced by Fred Woolley on drums in 1970. That iteration of uh, Judas Priest recorded two demos called Good Time Woman and uh, what might be the most icon- ironic song title ever, We'll Stay Together. <laughs> Just in case you're not familiar, listeners, uh, the band broke up shortly after recording that album or that demo. <laughs> Al Atkins would later join the band Freight, which was made up of K.K. Downing from earlier on guitars and Ian Skullhill on bass and John Ellis on drums. And when Atkins joined, uh, they took on the mantle of Judas Priest. Uh, they began gig around a bit and John Ellis quit and was replaced on drums by Alan Moore. Moore left and was replaced by Chris Congo Campbell. Cue Spinal Tap music. Right? <laughs> this the drummers is, are self-destructing. I have honestly wondered if this is not the uh, blueprint. For, it has to be, right? It's 100% it has to be. the blueprint. I don't know that anybody that wrote or worked on Spinal Tap has ever said that, but I'm, I'm positive they were looking at Judas Priest when they were making mm-hmm. Spinal Tap. So anyways, uh, Chris Campbell left soon afterwards and Al Atkins left the band as well. Uh, sorry, I read those in the wrong order. Al Atkins 
Atkins left the band because it was hard to make a living as a musician and his family needed some money. And then Chris Campbell left soon afterwards as well. So the band recruited two members from the band Hiroshima, uh, drummer John Hinch and vocalist Rob Halford. Rob was the brother of Ian Hill's at-the-time girlfriend. I wrote that sentence really weird. I'm tripping over my words today. <laughs> this iteration of the band played their first gig in the townhouse in Wellington, Shropshire, England in May 1973. Uh, they went on tour of Europe in 74 and then signed a record deal with the record label Gull, uh, like Seagull. Seagull Records. Gull's management suggested adding another member to the band, so they recruited Glenn Tipton on second lead guitar. Because, you know, when your manager says, meh, add another member. <laughs> you go uh, you go to the Flying Hat Band. <laughs> yeah, sure. Who happened to be managed by the same company. Yeah, why to, not? Uh, Tony just, Iommi from Black Sabbath, yeah. his management agency. Just grab us, just grab us one member of your band and throw them in ours. It'll be fine. Uh, so their first album was called Rocker Roller. Uh, was released in September 74. It's kind of a mess of an album. The sound it, quality sucks. Sound quality is absolute garbage. Uh, sound and feel of it was completely dictated by their producer, Roger Bain, who made decisions without consulting the band and basically didn't really know what he was doing. Because of that, the album was a flop on release and left the band in some really bad financial positions. Uh, the band performed parts of Rock and Rolla and some uh, some other songs from their next album on BBC Two's The Old Grey Whistle Test in 1975 to try to drum up some support. Shortly after that performance, John Hinch left the band and was replaced by returning member Alan Moore in October 75. The band recorded uh, Sad Wings of Destiny uh, in two weeks, which was their uh, next album, on a budget of £2,000. Right. To save money, members of the bands were eating only one meal a day. They took basically part-time jobs to keep paying their way to record this album. Right. And in an attempt not to suck, yeah. they all tried to remain sober during the 12-hour recording <laughs> sessions, and the resulting sound was tighter, yeah. more cohesive, more riff-driven. That album was released in March of 76, yeah. uh, and on the cover, there was a grounded angel surrounded by flames, wearing a devil's three-pronged cross, an image that would become Judas Priest's trademark. Exactly. They followed that with a headlining tour of the UK in the summer of 76. The album got much better reviews, but still continued to sell poorly, and they began yeah. growing disenchanted with Gull Records as the label was offering little in the way of support. Also, Alan Moore, surprise, left the band again, this time permanently. <laughs> yeah. But uh, lucky for them, CBS Records became interested after hearing Sad Wings of Destiny. Uh, and with the help of their new manager, David Hemmings, they signed with CBS Records. Yeah, and this gave them 60,000 pounds of budget for their next album. But it also meant that they would have to cut ties with Gull, who actually retains the rights to their first two albums, uh, all their singles that were recorded before that and all their demos that were recorded before that. So those are rarely re-released uh, just because there's they can't come to an agreement in order to do so. That The next album did pretty well. It eventually went gold and then platinum, uh, and that would be the first of 11 consecutive Judas Priest albums to go gold and then platinum, which is pretty, a pretty damn good run. Mm -hmm. uh, Simon Phillips uh, did not want to become a permanent member of the band. They brought him in to play session drums on that album, so they hired uh, Les Binks. Yeah, bit of irony here, where they recorded the next record. Mm-hmm was the same studio that uh, it was owned by The Who, and the, the Who had recorded Quadrophenia there. Yeah. And Simon Phillips would become the stand-in drummer for Keith Moon once Keith Moon passed away with The Who. Yeah. And he is a legend monster drummer. He's unbelievable. Yeah. Continue. Oh, thank you. So their next two albums, Stained Class and Killing Machine, which in the U.S. is called Hellbent for Leather, uh, further cemented the band's sound and pushed them onto some more commercial success. Uh, their development here was partially due to Les, who was very 
very musically talented and a very technical drummer. Les, of course, left the band in 79. However, because their manager, Mike Dolan, uh, he, excuse me, Les left the band in 1979 because their manager, Mike Dolan, decided not to pay him for performances that they had done on their live album, Unleashed in the East. Yeah, which even is, though he, paid, he played on it. Yeah, yeah, which is bullshit. He played on that album and then their manager's like, yeah, but we're not going to pay you for that. That's bullshit, man. That's bullshit. So they then hired uh, Dave Holland on drums. They returned to the studio to record their next album, which was British Steel. Yeah. Their sixth studio album, sixth studio album released April 11th, 1980 by Columbia Records. Rolling um, Stone gave it a favorable rating yeah. when it was first released, and it would eventually uh, name it number three on their list of 100 greatest heavy metal albums of all time. Considerable damage on the charts, getting to number four in the UK, number 34 on the Billboard Top 200, both significant achievements for any heavy metal album. Yeah. Went silver in the UK, went platinum in the US for sales above a million. Uh, and this album, as far as I can tell, changed the way metal was played in the industry. Yeah. Uh, before this, heavy metal was slow, like Smoke on the Water. It was about strength and heaviness. Uh, I think sludgy is a good Ooh, term for it. that's a really it. good term for it. But things began to change with this record. The sound became more direct and I guess more metal-like, like it began to sound like metal clanginess. Yeah. There was a metal, obviously there's the term, aspect to it. So British Steel was recorded at Tittenhurst Park. Yeah. Tittenhurst. Tittenhurst. Home of Ringo Starr. Yeah. Yeah, so they were recording at uh, Ringo Starr's house, basically. And I, I could not find out for sure when they say it's Ringo Starr's house. Was he living there at the time? Do no. you know? Okay, so it was just a house that he owned that was like a space. Correct. It was originally okay. John Lennon's house. Yes. John Lennon sold it to Ringo Starr. Yeah, okay. Ringo Starr had several homes by this point. Makes sense. And he, he was, was there occasionally. Okay, that makes more sense. But uh, uh, the room that they uh, worked in mostly and did some of the recording in is the same one from the Imagine music video. Yeah. Uh, where John is playing the piano with Yoko in that room. Like you said, this album had a lot more commercial success than any of their previous albums. Rob Halford suggests that might be just a little bit due to the fact that they were opening for ACDC on tour right before they recorded this album, and a little bit of that rock and roll sound might have carried over into what inspired them to write this album. Well, yeah, I don't think there's any way around it. No, you can hear it. Yeah. When you listen to this album, you can really hear a lot of that ACDC influence in here. I also think, and you touched on this a little bit already, but I do think that this in retrospect is a is a perfect case of right time right place right sound yes the band came out with this album at exactly the right time when people were craving something new and exciting they were in the right place they were a band that was not hugely successful and they were a band that was not unheard of so there were already a little bit of a built-in audience that was willing to pick it up and run with it and then help push it yeah i think there's a couple elements here at work so listening to this record for the first time in a long time mm -hmm. like 35 years it makes me think about heavy metal and what it has become. So if I asked you, Kyle, would you consider Motley Crue a heavy metal band? What would you say? I would, I would say no. Yeah, I would say they're they're a heavy rock band, Hard but rock not band. heavy metal. Any more than I think Van Halen or Guns N' Roses are heavy metal bands, Yeah, which I don't. They're hard rock bands. But there are songs on this record, songs like United, that are much softer than songs on records by Van Halen. Yeah. So what makes this heavy metal? And it sits, I think that's what you're trying to allude to, it sits at a very important junction of how music yes. was heading. I hear punk in this record. 
Oh yeah, there's definitely punk uh, influences. A sound that would continue to get refined and not resemble punk, but here it does resemble punk. I hear some reggae. Yeah, there's a I forget which track uh, the name of the track now, but oh, we'll come to yeah, it. Indicative, one... you know, of that strange spot uh, where this lays. But they were being influenced by stuff around them and weren't yeah. quite sure where to go. His voice is operatic in places, and it's growly in places. Some places it resembles what Ozzy would sound like. Some place it resembles what Bruce Dickinson would sound like who was still a few years away. And it's a very bizarre spot because listening to it very carefully, you can hear where they're going to be headed in songs like Living After Midnight because it is accessible with the metal edge to it. Yeah. But it's not necessarily, if you're you're saying Metallica is a heavy metal band, Megadeth is a heavy metal band, they don't have a lot in common with this record. Yeah. And then someone will say, well, that's thrash, but the genesis of it was metal. Yeah. You can throw another genre on top of that. But they're they're sitting in such a weird spot yeah. that I would I always would consider this a hard rock record with elements of, yeah, that's, heavy, that's fair of heavy metal. You know, you go back and you listen to early Metallica, you listen to a lot of the other early, you know, metal bands. Those albums are almost strictly metal from beginning to end. There might be a ballad thrown in there every once in a while, but they are strictly metal from beginning to end. This album plays around a lot. There are songs that I would agree are, are more metal. There are songs that are rock. Like you said, there's a reggae song on here. Uh, basically a reggae song. At least a reggae beginning. Yeah, a reggae beginning. But they played around a lot more. And I think that's what made this one so commercially successful because if you bought this album, you weren't just buying a metal album. You were buying something that you actually enjoyed listening to, not that you wouldn't enjoy listening to a metal album. But if you weren't already a metal fan, you could listen to this and these songs were not like in your head. They were pop, a little poppy and a little commercial, but it was pleasant to listen to. Agreed. So yeah. the cover. Yeah. Uh, it's a hand holding a giant giant double-edged safety razor blade. Uh, Printed on the blade is the name Judas Priest and the phrase British Steel twice. Uh, that stamp, British Steel, was used to denote that the steel had been mined and smelted in Britain as opposed to imported steel. Makes sense. Uh, British Steel, uh, in general, uh, referred to the steel industry in Britain. <laughs> what a surprise. Uh, which was nationalized first in 1951, undone by the Conservative Party a few years later, and then renationalized in 1967. So basically what that means is that the British government controlled all the steel industries in the country at the time. Uh, they made decisions that were really good for the country as a whole economically, which meant they closed a bunch of small mines and small steel uh, smelters and uh, smaller steel manufacturing plants in order to localize them near ports and places where they could ship steel much easier, which for the national economy as a whole of the UK, it was great because now they could make much more higher quality steel and have better control over it. However, this absolutely decimated the steel industry in the UK because it had relied for years on these industry cities where, oh, you know, this is a town of 2,000 people and 1,500 of them work in the steel mill. Well, you close down that steel mill and now those people don't have jobs unless they're willing to move to London or somewhere else. Right. And they, a lot of them were older. A lot of them had families that didn't want to move. And it absolutely decimated these small populations throughout England. Um, in the late 70s and into the 80s, in the Thatcher era, they really accelerated it. She was absolutely adamant that they needed to maintain control over the steel industry, and it was a a big deal. It was other industries too, but because the name of this album, I'm focusing primarily on the steel industry. But she drove that forward all the way through the 80s, and it meant the death of a bunch of small towns in the UK. And in that atmosphere is where you have the members of Judas Priest coming to write this album. Mm. And we'll come back to that in a lot of songs, where the 
inspiration came from, it was this exact atmosphere. The cover design is actually by a Polish painter uh, and photographer uh, named Rosla Siebo. I hope close. I'm pronouncing that right. Rosla Siebo. Oh, totally, totally not even close. <laughs> Rosla Siebo? Siebo. Siebo. S-Z-A-Y-B-O is Siebo. Siebo. Well, okay. I am Polish. I know. I thought you were Argentinian. <laughs> no. So, so uh, <laughs> he worked for CBS Records at the time. He's done over 2,000 album covers, uh, mostly for classical music albums, including John Williams. Uh, he's done several for him. Uh, he also does covers for people like Elton John, Roy Orbison, Santana, Janis Joplin, The Clash, Mott, The Hoople, uh, and many, many, many others, obviously, mm -hmm. since he's done 2,000 of them. For Judas Priest, he did this album, Stained Class and The Killing Machine, as well as designing the band's infamous logo. Um, there are also some Frodo credits on here for R. Ellsdale and R. Ellis, which I could find zero information about either of those people if they actually are people. I get the feeling from those names, this might be a band inside joke of some type Probably. that nobody has yet figured out. Because I could not find it. If you search for those names, it brings up a few hits, but it's not like obituaries. It's not like information. It's not like a LinkedIn page like I do photography or something like that. It's a secret, apparently. So uh, one other thing I want to talk about before we take a little break here. Sure. Uh, surprise, Rob Halford is gay. What? Yeah, I don't know if you knew that or not. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And I Well, I could throw out all these notes. None yeah. of these make sense right? anymore. Right? Just trash. So when he officially came out in 1998, though, it had this impact on pop culture and the music scene as a whole. It's a very beautiful interview that he was doing, and he wasn't planning to come out during this interview. Are you sure? Yes. I'm pretty okay. sure. I'm pretty right. sure. He wasn't planning to come out during this interview, and the reporter asked him a question, and he kind of like started to cry, and he just said, you know, I'm, I'm gay, and he completely came out like spontaneously. And he had kept it a secret for many years, not because he was necessarily embarrassed or anything like that about it, but because he was worried about the fan reaction. And he had become so famous and so reliant, and the band was relying on him to be a member and to, to keep making music. He was worried that coming out he would just destroy his career and end his life. Basically. Well, yeah, because the metal scene is a scene that's steeped in masculinity. Yeah. Like it's go to a Metallica concert or a Megadeth concert. It's 99% right? dudes. Yeah. Which 99% dudes. Yeah. And to me, yeah, well, we'll come back to that in just a second. <laughs> but the most amazing thing happened after he came out, though. He got thousands of letters, uh, messages from people all over the world, every type of communication you could possibly imagine of people saying, that's wonderful, good for you, we love your music, be yourself. Yeah. And that to me is amazing. The fact, and this was 1998, so this was quite a long time ago. This was not a time where you had to be like Elton John, uh, uh, Freddie Mercury level to be able to be open about it. Mm -hmm. And while Rob Halford is very famous, I don't think he was quite at that level. And But he was one of the, one of the first major musicians to do it and to do it, you know, on air and to, to, to come out like that was awesome. Interestingly enough, though, you know, he made music all the way through the 70s, late 70s, through the 80s, into the 90s. And a lot of the imagery that he included in his music videos, a lot of the imagery that would become to, like, personify the metal scene. Are you speaking of leather? Leather, <laughs> studs, studs, you know, very hot men in, you know, ripped abs with, you know, harnesses on and shit. Seems a little gay. <laughs> Seems just, a, you know, just a little. And I think... um I really think Patton Oswald said it best in one of his specials where he says, you know, if you were into the metal, if you were into heavy metal in the 1980s, guess what? You're gay. You're gay. Sorry, you're gay. Well, 
You, uh, you're familiar with the uh, the Police Academy movies? Yes. You know how they always ended up in the Blue Oyster Bar? Yes. And they were all head-to-toe leather. Mm-hmm. No one's making that connection between heavy metal, like with Blue Oyster Bar. Why? There? What? Is there a connect? No? Wait okay. a minute. We'll just let it go. <laughs> it's, uh, yes, it's very interesting. Studded leather, mustaches, motorcycles. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But if you listen uh, to metal in the 70s, you're gay. Yeah. Sorry to tell you that. Guy just pops it up. That's, I'm what? <laughs> that's from Kyle, by the way. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll just, yeah. But uh, yeah, should we take a quick break and come back? We'll do the uh, track by track. Sure. Right, take care. We'll see you in a second. So, Breaking the Law. Yes, absolutely, apparently. Yeah. A brilliantly simple song that absolutely grabs you. It opens pretty quickly. It makes for an okay opener to an album, in my opinion. Not as good, I don't think, as opening with Rapid Fire, though. I was going to say, I don't think this album opened with Breaking the Law. <laughs> but what's the first thing that comes in your head when you hear this song, Breaking the Law? Bre- actually, Breaking the Law. Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah. Beavis and freaking Butthead. <laughs> These two things became so iconic and made Priest relevant again in the mid-90s. And this is one of those songs that is really one of the greatest hard rock songs of all time. And another one that makes it hard to call this a metal album. Yeah. First of all, songs two minutes and 35 seconds long, which by most standards is not the length of metal material, but more the length of a punk song. Yeah. You even pointed that out to me yesterday when we were discussing a different record. Yeah. <laughs> punk songs are short. Punk songs are short, man. You. Also, in this <gasps> version, no guitar solo. Yeah. One of the necessary elements of metal songs by most people's standards. Agree. There was a lot of political strife going on in the UK at the time, and that's what this song was written about. Also, outside the main scope of metal. Yeah. Politics. Instantly recognizable. Instantly singable and a minor hit another thing that didn't happen to metal outside of metallica yeah uh song was released as a single did respectably well reaching number 12 in the uk number 19 in ireland weird and it stood the test of time vh1 the determiner of all things metal in my opinion called it the 40 great 40th greatest metal song of all time oh that same channel also named it the 12th greatest hard rock song of all time Hmm. so they too are conflicted about what genre really belongs in (laughs) rolling stone because it is conflicted as ever named it the fourth greatest heavy metal song of all time so i can't make sense of it i know in the long run it really doesn't matter but it's a great song it's just too short all right i totally believe that vh1 determines all things metal yeah so this song is about somebody who starts to break the law in order to feel something uh, which is a condition called kleptomania technical definition is an inability to resist the urge to steal items usually for reasons other than personal use or financial gain it was first described in 1816 and is classified in psychiatry as an impulse control disorder which by the way would make a great metal album name impulse control disorder it probably is already it probably already is but so of this song, and kind of touching on the same things that you already said, Rob Halford wrote in his autobiography titled Confess, quote, a lot of bad stuff was going on. The heavy industry and the car makers in the Midlands and around the country were struggling, and there was already talk of factory closures. Unemployment was shooting up. Worst of all, millions of young people had no hope and felt they were being ignored. Writing the lyrics for Breaking the Law, I tried to put myself in the mind of a jobless young bloke at his wit's end. Sounds like today. Yeah, doesn't sound like much has changed. No, and it sounds like this.
or breaking the such, law. Such an iconic song. And I totally, I, I don't forgive them for rearranging the track order, but I understand why they put this first on the album in the US because the music industry feels like Americans are too stupid to figure out that they have to like move ahead a few tracks to get to the one that they want to listen to. <laughs> I maybe, maybe, but we see this over and over and over again where they're like, oh, and in the US it had a different order because it's like, oh, well, we knew the hit song was going to be this one and this one. So we put those as the first track on the front and the back of the album. Yeah, because they know Americans either A, buy the single yeah. back then or B, buy the record and hope the single's the first song so they don't have exactly. to listen to the rest of it. Which is, is stupid in my opinion, but whatever. But interesting note here, sound effects heard yeah. throughout this thing uh, were done with real items they found around Ringo Starr's house. Why I like not? To, I like to say it that way. Uh, they actually broke glass bottles to get the effect of, you're never going to believe this, breaking glass bottles. His milk bottles yeah. out by the back door. Yeah, why not? Uh, that will come up again a little bit later. But uh, it, to me, that's just such a funny imagery. Like, I just picture them just recording in a studio and Ringo Starr is in the kitchen trying to eat a bowl of cereal. Yeah, I know he wasn't there, but I just picture him and they come in, oh, are you done with the milk, Ringo? And he's like, yeah, thank you. And then I mean, oh, that's going to work great. Do you have more of these bottles? And then they collect some bottles and walk off and he's just like... That's probably exactly how it happened. Just just shakes his head and keeps eating cereal. Just Yes, I believe that's how it happened. Rapid fire. So the first song on the record... The first oh, song on the record... Uh, aptly titled. Yeah. Because it's probably the fastest song on the record. Oh, definitely. Uh, coming at you like a battering ram. Yeah. So if you listen to Priest's catalog, they are a lot like metal bands at the time that prefer the long, drawn-out intro to songs. But this is a much different approach. Very fast, very early. Certainly the metaliest of the songs on the album. Oh, yeah. And you can absolutely hear Metallica several years from now on this song. You can hear where Metallica was like, yes, yes, that's what we that. want to sound like uh, this song would be covered by Metallica and performed by Metallica with Rab Halford yeah. a number of times. So that's cool. And the lyrics are great. And unlike a lot of this record, very metal. Anytime you can use words like cleaving, wielding, blasting, shattering, <laughs> and hammering, you got yourselves a good old-fashioned metal song. Yeah. As far as what the lyrics are trying to portray, it's very vague. The supposition is that the band is coming at you like a battering ram, that this is metal and it will beat you over the head and be so in your face that there's no way to avoid it, uh, but that is a supposed interpretation because of the non-specifics of the lyrics. Yeah. The use of the baseball term Grand Slam mm. seems remarkably out of place here uh, because what exactly is the final Grand Slam? The actual act of hitting a Grand Slam is pretty rare in baseball, relatively speaking, so I'm not sure when the final one would happen and what it would refer to. Perhaps it's Operation Grand Slam to steal all the gold from Fort Knox. It could be. Oh, which? It's a Goldfinger. 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 <laughs> to me, this is absolutely a case of uh, needing a line that rhymed and boom, yeah. Grand Slam. They, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of too, it's it's a term that has entered the, the lexicon. It's something that people can use like, oh, that's a Grand Slam, right? Yeah, it's a Grand Slam. I don't even know what a Grand Slam actually is in baseball, but I would absolutely try to use it. It's a home run. Okay. When... All of the bases are occupied by other players. Oh, okay. So you you score four, four points. Runs. That makes Correct. sense. Okay. Uh, the song was written by Downing, Tipton, and Halford. Features what would be a hallmark of Judas Priest and the Nawabum sound. Mm -hmm. Dueling guitar solos. Yeah. I love that sound. I always have, especially when they're working off each other harmonically. I think it's awesome when they're playing different, completely different melodic lines. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, weirdly, the name Rapid Fire never used in the lyrics for this song. It sounds a little bit like this.
Dude, just insane song. And I I absolutely, I agree that I think this is a better opener to the album, personally. But It is. There was a lot of speculation online that this is actually about uh, the sounds and the noise of the destruction of Earth, or at least the destruction of humanity on Earth. And you can kind of hear it at the end of the song a little bit more, but the idea being that that leads into the next song, Metal Gods. Mm. The Metal Gods from this are robots and machines that have risen up to destroy humanity, uh, and maybe, you know, their attack was the noise from the first song, or from the previous song. They were heavily influenced by H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds and by Queen's 1977 album cover, News of the World, which shows a giant robot with human-like face uh, killing members of the band and stomping on people and ripping things down, mm-hmm. uh, depending upon which version of the album cover you look at. If you aren't familiar with that album cover, uh, you might know it from uh, that episode of Family Guy where Stewie is scared of the album cover. Which it turns out in doing some research, that was actually something that Seth MacFarlane was scared of as a child. So that's why he ended up writing that into. My brother had that record. It was, uh, it's, it's pretty intense. It is a very scary album cover. It's, it's a little creepy. Yeah. There's that one in uh, Nazareth's Hair of the Dog is the same way. Ooh. It was always like, ah. <laughs> going through the albums, I'm like, yeesh. <laughs> uh, but uh, this is the old trope, right? Robots rise up and become yeah. sentient, take over the world. The lines, we've taken too much for granted and all the time it had grown from techno seeds we first planted, evolved a mind of its own. We've seen this a thousand times, right? But it's one of those songs that doesn't sound very heavy metal to me. Sounds hard rock, sure, but not metal. Has the tempo and song structure like a Motley Crue song or something along those lines. And the melodies aren't that far removed from it. Halford's voice is really the only thing on the song for me anyway that sets it apart a little bit, makes it more metal-like. Laser beaming hearts. Ooh, that's a good line. Is he saying that the robots have laser beaming hearts or that they are laser beaming other people's hearts? Maybe both. I need to know. Because why would they have hearts if they were robots? But maybe that's where their laser beam starts and it shoots out and laser beams other people's hearts and kills them. Mm. Like, oh, look, their hearts are glowing red. They must love us. And the laser shoots out. I need die. But, but anyway, this is 1979 when it's being written. Sci-fi really at a pinnacle post yeah. Star Wars and Alien right about that same time. So uh, Rob Halford's name, nickname, Metal God. Yeah. Even trademarked it in 2009 as he became the ambassador and elder statesman for metal for the last two decades. And remember that they were recording in what was essentially Ringo Starr's house, and this was 1979, long before the time of samples you could just download off the internet. So the metallic sounds that you hear throughout the song are the sounds of Ringo's cutlery yeah. being dropped and shaken <laughs> over and over by the band. And the Beatles still influencing people. Yeah, sounds like this. Droning metal guns. Iconic. Just it's such a unique sound in this song. It's it's very good. I like it quite a bit. Grinder. Yep. So decades before it was the name of an app uh, used by men everywhere to hook up for a quickie. 
Uh, <laughs> it was this song. I was going to let you steer this one. Thank you. I appreciate it. I guess the two do have one thing in common. Uh, grinding Meat. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> was the app an homage to the name of this song, or is it coincidental? Because um, Halford has said on many occasions that this song was not written with yeah. any sort of sexual undertones. He says that the song is a commentary on how governments and corporations will treat people like meat, grinding them up, spitting them out, exploiting them for their means. By the way, churches do that too very effectively. Oh my. And I could see that meaning in the lyrics. Yeah. But it's hard to deny that these lyrics could be easily interpreted or interpreted with sexual meanings. Refuse to bait the man trap. Be led to set the snare. I love to have my sight capped everywhere. <laughs> In an interview with uh, Louder, Rob said, quote, Grinder is the furthest thing from a sexual song, end quote. Right? He so, said that. Yeah. I think it's kind of coincidental. Nobody has ever said, obviously, it's been, you know, suggested because Rob Halvard is gay and there's an app called Grinder that lets gay men hook up, that maybe there was some influence there. I think it was coincidental. I think the idea behind Grinder was it was two people grinding on one another. Fair enough. Uh, and then, you know, this takes it to the next level because you no longer have to do that. You can just push a button and you go over to somebody's house. But he, he doesn't shy away from connections to the app, though. No. If it is related, because he has wondered aloud yeah. in interviews why the app hasn't reached out to him to use the song in advertising. Right? I can tell you why. Because it's probably friggin' expensive to get those licensing rights. Yeah. Well, that and I don't think they do a whole lot of advertising. I mean, you're not watching commercials for Grinder. Like, hey, you want a blowjob? Grinder. You know, they can't put those commercials on television. They can't? No. Oh. Well, let me put it this way. Every advertisement I've ever seen for Grinder was on a website that you had to be 18 or older to be on. So, musically speaking, uh, this is definitely a more commercial sounding Judas Priest. Yes. More like ACDC, like we said, straight ahead rhythms, and he's got a great uh, he's got a great snarl in the song. It's just a great tune. Yeah, it sounds like this. As the mighty ego, I need room to Grinder looking, looking for, for meat. meat. Those are the words. So I have an explanation for this. I think, okay, Matthew. go ahead. Are you familiar with the Bizarro world from Superman comics? Of course. This is a Bizarro fuck song. It is just, it is a complete turn off. No, it's not sexual in any way. All right. But in the Bizarro world, maybe that's your thing. Maybe so. Maybe so. United? Yeah, well, we go from one of my favorite songs on the record to not. Yeah. This one was specifically written uh, as like a crowd involvement song, kind of like Queen's We Will Rock. You. Oh, obviously. Um, you know, obviously when you hear it, the the lyrics, the pacing, the hand clapping, it's all designed to get the crowd interacting with the band as much as possible. 
It's also, it was heavily inspired by the Thatcher government and their conservatism at the time. And the idea being that if we unionize, if we hold together, we can defeat them. It kind of fit. Um, I think the other idea was that it would be used by unions as like a rallying cry and a chant. And it, I don't think it ever was, but maybe. No, um, I, I think it, I mean, it got to number 12 or no, 26 in the UK. I yeah. can't read. Um, so it was released as a single revving their motorcycle out there. Rob? Alfred? He's here. Uh, the song really throws me off because there's no way on earth that I consider this a metal song. Yeah. In any way. Yeah, I just... I don't like it. Yeah, it sounds like this. United, 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 we stand. United, we never shall fall. United, 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 we stand. United, we stand one and all. So give me hope. Don't give in. Take that, International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Yeah! <laughs> I mean, again, I don't think it's a bad song, but it's not great. It's not one of my favorites. It's not like a memorable Judas Priest song. So Suck it, Culinary Union! Whoa. Oh, sorry. Don't ever say that about the Culinary Union. They will come for us. Uh, if, <laughs> they know where I live already. If episodes suddenly stop happening and Matthew and I disappear. You know what happens. I know. They know where I live. So uh, in the U.S., you flip the album over now. Yeah. Living After Midnight opens the second side. I have that. Sweet. Yeah. So uh, this is the song that kind of got me into Judas Priest originally. So familiar enough, played on the radio pretty frequently, and then kind of built from there. Oh, okay. They're kind of a rock band. And then I would never have listening listening to them where I grew up. This was always played on rock and roll radio. Yes. So I never would have been like, oh, they're a metal band. No, see, that's and that's the thing. Cut to number 12 in the UK, not a mega hit, but it's mm. instantly recognizable, just like Breaking the Law. Iconic song that continues to be one of the most popular in metal history, yeah. or rock his metal history. However, the song is about the nocturnal life of a rock star. Yeah, He rides out of town at 1 a.m. and then rocks out till dawn, based on real-life experience, or at least a... L- Allegedly. Yes. Alfred was upstairs. You you have, you have saw this, right? Yeah. Upstairs at Tittenhurst trying to mm-hmm. get some sleep while Glenn Tipton had his amp downstairs at 4 a.m. Do you have the quote from this? Yeah. Go, no, you go ahead. I was say, do you have both quotes? The one from Rob Halford and the one from K.K. Downing? Yeah. Go okay. ahead. So I was say... So uh, uh, Rob Halford uh, said, my bedroom at Tittenhurst Park was above the room where John Lennon played the piano in the Imagine video. Uh, Glenn Tipton had set up his rig there and was clanking away at three in the morning. I came downstairs and I said, what are you going? What are, what are you going, Glenn? I'm trying to sleep. And he's like, oh, man, I've got this great chord sequence. And I said, you're really living after midnight here. It was a genuine off the cuff remark. And he goes, that's a brilliant title for that tune. Yeah. And then K.K. Downing added to that, quote, he kept me up as well. It was driving me mad. I was so sick of it by six in the morning, but one thing was for sure, I couldn't get that tune out of my head. That's fair. Yeah. It's it's a legendary song. And the thing that really does it for me is the loaded line. Yeah. That repeat of the word at the end of the line really gives that song a more weight to it. And yeah. I, I don't think it would have had as much impact without it. I don't know what it is about that. Just that little bit, but that little it's, bit, I love it. It's I absolutely a very love it. sticky little piece. And it sounds like this. Yeah. 
absolutely right, Randy. It does sound it like rat. It does sound a lot like rat. So uh, dep- despite its uh, popularity now, it's filled with radio-friendly riffs. There's no swearing. There's no overt sex in this song, but it never charted. Rob Halford has said that he intentionally left the lyrics uh, to what he was doing after midnight very vague. Uh, he suggests a little bit of drinking and riding around on a motorcycle. He probably had a gun. Uh, but beyond that, it's left to your imagination. He said that he didn't want to glorify drinking and sex, even though that was the lifestyle he was living at the time. Did not want to glorify <clears throat> drinking. And I'm going to look to Randy and say, sex. Can you? Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> I was just trying to was trying to be, trying, he doesn't have to do Foley now. I just and there you go. Okay. All right, him. perfect. But uh, yeah, it's definitely one of their most popular songs for sure. It gets tons of radio play to this day. And it's one of those songs that gets played at like sporting events and outdoor events and things to like amp up the crowd. It's every, you hear it all the time. It's great. You don't have to be old to be wise, man. But I am. I mean, but old or wise? Old. Oh, okay. Second song on side two of the yeah. vinyl, classic metal rebellion song. Mm-hmm. You're sick of being told what to do, so you're basically flipping the bird to authority, kind of, kind of in the vein of breaking the law. Yeah. Lines, I'm, I've grown sick and tired of the same old lies. Might look a little young, so what's wrong? You don't have to be old to be wise. Awesome lines. It's also the longest song on the record, mm-hmm. clocking in at just a little over five minutes, which is nothing for a metal song. Yeah. Has a great sound. Song reminds me very much of Looks That Kill by Motley Crue many years. Years yes. later. There's definitely some influence. There. The opening riff is eerily similar. Uh, it also has some great guitar solos by Downing and Tipton, both of whom are no longer in the band. Uh, yeah. One, uh, Glenn Tipton, due to medical reasons, and Downing because, well, getting along with the guys you have made music with for 40 years is difficult when money is involved. Fair enough. Not amicable yeah. in the least. <laughs> Not at all amicable. So the story here, tell, uh, the story of this song uh, speaks about a young man and how he's sick of the system, sick of the machine, sick of being told how to act and what to say and what to do all the time. Uh, he doesn't feel like he has control over his own life. Uh, and then uh, by the end of the song, he finally takes the reins and controls his own life. And it sounds like this. I mean, it's it's a good song. It's very much uh, uh, like you said. It's it's uh, becomes kind of a, a touch point for a lot of future metal and, and punk songs. But it's very um, a little out of place on this album, if I'm honest. I feel I don't know why. Just it doesn't have the right that feel song? to me. Yeah. Hmm. Weirdly enough, it just has. I mean, there's. We'll get to the next one too. Ooh, we talk about out of place on this album. Yeah, this one to me just I, I don't know. Maybe it's the timing. Maybe whatever. It's a good song. Don't get me wrong. But I just feel like it didn't quite fit here. However, the next song, the rain. Uh, starts out as a reggae song. I reinforce my statement that this is not a heavy metal record yet. Not only does it start with a plodding bass line, but it breaks into full-blown reggae stomp that is so ridiculously out of place that I don't 
even know what to say. Yeah. They should have called it the Regage. <laughs> the Regage. The Regage. I mean, yes, hard charging riff eventually settles in. But by that point, I was so confused that I couldn't listen to it properly the first time. Fair. Uh, subsequent listens, it does kind of work, but it's still not heavy metal. Yeah. But the lyrics to the song, while making no sense whatsoever, are probably the best on the record. And they are metal. Mm-hmm. The first verse, from a fireball we came, across sea and mountain. We were drinking beauty with our eyes. We were given all to make our own. Let us be left alone. Come on, he's talking, that's, that's metal now. That is some, like you picture some Vikings coming across right. the ocean. Fireball we came, and Halford had this to say about it. Unto this day, I haven't got a clue what I was singing about. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any clue where this idea came from, oh, but essentially see. it's saying you're free to be who you want to be. So there you go. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, uh, and it sounds like this. It works as a song. Yes. Let's just drop the damn reggae. Right. You know, leave that on a police record and keep it off. Keep it off Priest. K.K. Downing said to in a Billboard interview, quote, I particularly enjoyed doing the solo work on that song. It's just that other part of me, excuse me, it's just that other part of me that really likes the feel and emotion. I grew up listening to great players like Paul Kossoff and the ever-bluesy Gary Moore. So this is just me doing that style of guitar playing for a change. And the guitar work in this is excellent yeah. uh, once you get past the reggae. And Gary Moore, Gary Moore's a good influence to have. Yeah. Rock. Steeler? Definitely one of the more successful songs sound-wise in the band's catalog. Yes. I feel like everything they had been working up on, working on up to this point was leading to this song, the last song on the record, because it's pointing the way to where they're headed. Oh, absolutely. According to KK Downing, a ton of other musicians cite this as their favorite Judas Priest track, including Dimebag, Daryl from Pantera. Mm -hmm. He says he has no idea why, but I feel like the groove is so solid in this song, everything just lays right. The rhythm of the vocals with the hard charging bass line and the steely metal chords it's just right it yeah. just things fell into place here there's also that great uh guitar solo right in the middle oh yeah it's so good oh, the dual solos yeah yeah add that a perfect metal bridge and then great metal lyrics waiting like jackals to sneak up and trick you Wolf, wolves and sheep's clothing so deft and consoling anytime you mention mention jackals in a metal song yeah see that stuff works jackal with a y no no oh no, not, not, not that not, oh, metal, okay. no. Sorry. But that's just so awesome. And it's a perfect way to finish the record because, yeah. like I said, they're leading up to this and they're clearly poised in a position to propel themselves to, uh, which I think Defenders of the Faith yeah. was the next record. Yeah. And then, yeah, so, and then Steel Vengeance. So, yeah. That it's it's definitely a wonderful closer to this album. You can really hear in this song the stuff that would influence them in the future. And it sounds like this. Oh, so 
So Rob has said that he feels like this is a really negative rage-filled song. I think of it as more of an empowering, self-actualizing song. It's about stealing yourself to defend against the destruction others others are going to try to bring to your life. They're going to try to put you down. They're going to try to tell you you can't do things. And it's about preparing yourself, knowing that that's going to happen, and then being ready to take them on. I think that's fair. Right? And it's a perfect way to finish the record. Yeah. This is a pretty short album. Uh, it's only 38 minutes long, to 37 minutes long total. Um, it's a good listen. It's, yeah. It's very energetic. It'll, uh, you know, if you've got something to do for half an hour it's worth your time it's uh, a great almost metal record it's a great almost metal record definitely set the table for what was to come in the birthing of the uh, new wave of British heavy metal uh, in just a few years and set their careers on fire here a career that is still going strong in fact they were just tipped to fill Ozzy Osbourne's spot at Power Trip this fall Ooh. got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2022 so uh, that's a pretty successful career that's cool and we'd like to know what you think about yeah. this record so you can get a hold of us uh, at any of our socials, facebook.com forward slash audio judo, Twitter at audio judo, or Instagram at audio underscore judo, or you can send us an email directly at info at audio judo.com and let us know. We have some uh, shout outs too. Shout outs we do. Uh, front row seats tier, uh, Simon C, our UK consultant. Thank you so much. Uh, front row seats tier, uh, Michael A, Aaron P, and Darlene W. Thank you all so much. Backstage past here, Kristen K, Scott K, Michael S, Christian S, and David W. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much yeah, for your support. We do appreciate it. We do. Also, I do have a quick question for anybody out there. If we're missing anybody from that list, will you please drop us a quick message and let us know? I feel like there was one other person on there that paid for a couple of months, and I can't find any record of them in Patreon. Oh, my God. So I don't know what happened. I It might be something we screwed up. It might be something that's fallen through the cracks or whatever. So if you are currently paying and we're not giving you a shout out, please give us a message and let us know so we can correct it. Yeah, please do. Uh, we have episodes coming up. Uh, we have a patron episode that I'm not yeah. going to tell you what it's about. You're just going to have to figure it out for yourself. <laughs> then we have uh, the beginning of season five. So mm -hmm. it'll be most likely a toad record because that's Who what we guessed? do. And then uh, we have a album by Wire and Kansas coming up. Yeah. So uh, full slate of things to do. And we hope you stick with us. Uh, other than that, we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye, uh, everybody. Bye, everybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.